My name's Bill, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> By the grace of God, I'm sober this morning, and that's the most important thing that I will tell you in this hour is that it is by the grace of a loving God and his gift of you to me that I didn't want to take a drink this morning and I haven't wanted to take a drink for a lot of mornings and that's a miracle and I love sitting up at a table like this and looking out on a Sunday morning into the face a room full of faces of miracles even if you don't have your clothes on <laughs> I got real worried a while ago when Janet said that because Keith started taking his clothes off up here and I <laughs> I, too, want to echo what Scott said about the wonderful hospitality. We think we in the southern United States have a lock on southern hospitality. You folks in southern Canada have got it down pat. You got it great. I want to thank Bryce for his hospitality this weekend, for showing us your beautiful city, the falls, the mountain. Uh, and and uh, thank you so much for that and for all of the hospitality and the great food and the great fellowship. There's only one thing you could do for me that would make my trip to Canada complete. Give us our World Series trophy. <laughs> this year. <laughs> Do you know what we've been doing all weekend here? We've been treating a terminal disease. What a treatment. I happen to believe that we're the luckiest people on the face of this earth. My story begins um, up in the hills of North Georgia in a little bitty town, tiny little town. They used to say on Saturday night in my little hometown there were three things you could do on a Saturday night. You could watch them unload the truck at the A&P. You could watch the water tank leak. Or you could cross over the Savannah River into South Carolina and buy beer and drink. I can assure you I did not arrive at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous from too much water tank watching. I knew I was different before um, I ever had my first drink, which was at the age of 15 time I had my first drink, Sean had already been at it for a year. You know, I happened to be the same age. Um, I knew I was different before then. You know, when I came to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, you could have put me on a lie detector and said, Bill, how long have you been drinking alcoholically? I would have said, oh, a couple of years. Strange thing about it, the longer you stay here, the further back it goes. <laughs> I believe with all my heart today that I was born an alcoholic. At the age of 15, I became, began my journey toward becoming a drunk. And it took until I was almost 40 to just become an alcoholic again. And I say just become an alcoholic because I don't have a problem with being an alcoholic. Personally, I'm not very anonymous. It was the worst kept secret in the world when old Bill got sober. But even before that first drink, I was different. I never fit anywhere. I never belonged anywhere. Inside, I felt like I was always on the outside looking in. I had one of those egos that said I was better than, but that self-esteem or lack thereof said you're less than. 
I was a scared little boy. My mom would send me to the grocery store to find a particular item, and I would wander up and down for a half an hour if I had to, rather than stop somebody and ask them where it was. Terrified of people. When I said I never fit in and I never belonged, people who went to school with me said, that's not true. Though I belonged to every or club, every organization, every group, every church group, every civic group, he was a part of everything. No, I was a member of everything. I was a part of nothing. And I struggled so hard to belong, and yet I never felt like I did. When I was 15 years old, a group of friends asked me one Saturday night to go across the Savannah River into South Carolina and buy some beer and come back and sit on the banks of the river and drink. And either out of curiosity or peer pressure or a combination of both, I did. And somebody opened a can of Pabst Blue Ribbon and handed me a beer, and I turned it up and took a great big swallow. And it was, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most vile, putrid, god-awful-tasting stuff I had ever put in my mouth. Only drank six that night. <laughs> Got drunk. Terrible-tasting stuff. But somewhere between the second and the third beer, that little click went off right back here. And suddenly, little Billy Sanders wasn't afraid anymore. Suddenly, I was handsomer, sexier, wittier, smarter than I had ever been in my entire life. Or anybody I had ever known in my entire life. <laughs> that moment that Sean was talking about last night. And I knew, I knew at that moment I had found a friend. A friend for the rest of my life. And it almost was. During my high school years, I didn't drink that much because in a little town the size of the one I grew up in, there ain't no such thing as anonymity. Everybody knows everybody else's business and what they do. And, 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 and I would never have had to worry about uh, um, trying to make it to AA or anything else if my mother had ever caught me drinking. I wouldn't have lived long enough to. But I came from a Southern Baptist family where you didn't drink in public. <laughs> but then I graduated from high school and went off to college. And when I went off to college, I went to a, the University of Georgia. The student population was almost three times that of my whole hometown, and I had my first taste of anonymity. And I began drinking every day. I very soon discovered that liquor was quicker, and I got into the bottle on a daily basis. Nobody cared how much little Billy Sanders drank. Nobody cared whether I went to classes or not. I did learn a lot of things about the university, although um, not all of them were pleasant. I, I learned, for example, that they're very unpatriotic at the University of Georgia. I got, uh, almost got thrown out of school for singing the American National Anthem. Of course, I was singing it to an empty flagpole in front of the infirmary at 3 o'clock in the morning waking up all the patients inside. There's a grand tradition at the University of Georgia that after football games they ring the chapel bell way into the night. The chapel bell chimes sounding out the victory of another Georgia foot Bulldog football team. They have a roster in the library at the university. It goes back for over a hundred years of the official bell ringers. You can go back and look in 1905 on such and such a date and see who rang the bell between this hour and this hour. I rang the bell at the chapel of the university. My name's not in that roster. <laughs> of course, I was ringing it on Easter Sunday morning at about 3 o'clock. 
A lot of people have grand memories of their college life. Mine is a rather foggy, hazy dream because I don't remember a lot of it. I had gone into the profession that I've been in for almost 40 years when I was 13 years old. I became a disc jockey in a local radio station and uh, supposedly at that time was the youngest disc jockey in America. A lot of them have come along a lot younger since then. Everybody assumed that that cocky, smart aleck young fellow on the radio spinning records and spouting patter was who I was. Self-confident, self-assured, that was somebody else. That was another person hiding behind the anonymity of a microphone. Inside I was still, still that scared little kid. Didn't belong, didn't fit. When I was a junior at the University of Georgia, I applied for, along with several hundred other people, an opportunity to work at the first and largest radio and television station in the South, WSB in Atlanta. Dream of every kid that studied broadcasting to win that internship. And as fate would have it, my roommate and I won the two internships for that year. And on a spring day of that year, we traveled the 60 or 70 miles from Athens to Atlanta to meet the people we'd be working with that summer. They were all big stars to us. Found a little apartment to rent for the summer to live in. We were on top of the world. Life couldn't get any better than this. And so we went to a bar to celebrate and hit two or three bars in Atlanta and drank and had a wonderful time and finally took the car back to the friend we had borrowed from in Athens. Neither one of us had our own car. We returned the car to the apartment and went, back, went inside and didn't want the day to end. It had to keep going. This is just top of the world, top of the world. <clears throat> in the wee hours of that morning, I did what I started always doing around that time. I would uh, start becoming a different person when I would drink, usually a total blithering idiot. And I started clowning around. I reached up on the wall and took down an old long-barrel Colt twenty-two pistol out of a huge gun collection that the guy had in his apartment, started waving it around pointed at my roommate and said, stick him up, and he threw up his hands, and I pointed a gun at him and pulled the trigger, and there was a sound like thunder. In a moment, my roommate was lying on the floor in front of me in a pool of blood. A few hours later, at a local hospital, they were to tell us that Wayne would live, but that he would never walk again. The bullet had severed his spine. And in the early hours of the, mor the next morning in that hospital room, a strange thing happened. My roommate reached up and put his hand on my arm and said, Bill, don't blame yourself for this. It was an accident. It could have e just as easily been the other way around. You can't blame yourself. He forgave me immediately. But I didn't forgive myself for more than 20 years. I used it as an excuse to crawl into the bottle and to live. I went on that summer and fulfilled that internship, working all day and heading to the bar and drinking all night going back to that lonely little apartment and collapsing into the bed and passing out, repeating the cycle over and over again. The summer that was to have been the dream of a lifetime is today but a foggy, hazy nightmare. But as long as I had the cycle and enough booze, I could stop the voices. But then fall came and it was back to school. When I got back to school that fall, it all came apart. And I set a plan into motion. I started going to the infirmary at the university every day and asking for some pills to help me sleep because I was having trouble sleeping. And they had three doctors there, and I'd go to them on alternating days, and they'd give me pills, and I'd take them back and put them in the nightstand drawer in the dormitory. And I waited till one Friday night when my roommate, my new roommate, was headed home from the week for the weekend to show his family his brand-new car he had bought. And I set my plan into motion. 
I stood at the dormitory window and I watched as the young man pulled out the driveway of the dormitory and up the street and out of sight. I closed the blinds, sat down on the bed and emptied all the little bottles of what was later determined to be between 50 and 60 sleeping pills on the nightstand and one by one and two by two I popped them down and swallowed them. Turned out the light and pulled up the covers. <coughs> and I believe for more than 20 years that it was a huge colossal coincidence that my roommate's brand new car broke down at the city limits of Athens and had to be towed back. And that he came back into that dormitory room and found those pill bottles and found me, knew the state of mind I'd been in and called an ambulance. I say I believed it was a coincidence because I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I love the definition I heard a few years ago that a coincidence is a miracle in which God chooses to remain anonymous. And I believe this was the first of... I believe this was the first of many times that the God that you have introduced me to looked down and said, Big boy, I'm not through with you yet. And I don't know what his plan is for me. I don't know what the future holds. But I do believe if I keep showing up in these rooms and associating with you people that I'll be in the right place at the right time to do whatever God's will is for this alcoholic's life. And when I think of all the places I ended up all the strange places, strange cities, all of the cars I wrecked and totaled. No way I should be here before you this morning. I thank God every day that I am. It was after that suicide attempt that I began the great American tradition of visiting the neighborhood shrink. I have no idea how many of those individuals I saw over the next 20 years and how many thousands of dollars that I and my family paid them. But I do know I walked out of every one of their offices at every one of those visits, damning them because not one single one of them ever did anything to help me. Now, this is a program of rigorous honesty, so I'm forced to tell you that I think that there is at least the remote possibility that one or more of them might have been able to help me if I had ever once told them the truth. Somewhere around the second or third question, they always ask, do you think you might have a drinking problem? My answer is no, I drank fine. <clears throat> and they treat something else. I did eventually exit the University of Georgia. I did it with a diploma in my hand. I've never been fully sure if I earned it or if they just got tired of me hanging around over there. I'm not going to ask because I've gotten it used to hanging around my house the last 30 years. But I ended up in another town in northern Georgia and went to work at a radio station there thought, you know, you're, you're out of college now, you're grown, you need to clean up your act, you need to cut down on your drinking, you need to become a, a citizen of the community. So I joined the church and I joined the local civic organizations and I joined the local fraternal order that had the only bar in town and I joined, the, I became a Boy Scout leader, <coughs> even became a Sunday school teacher and guess what got most of my attention? The bar. Every day I went to that bar as soon as work was over. And it wasn't too long till I met a beautiful girl and quickly fell in love and was ready to take a hostage. And I thought, you know, if you want to win this girl's heart, you're going to have to cut down on your drinking and you're going to have to learn how to behave yourself. To my utter delight, I discovered that wasn't necessary because that woman liked to drink just as much as I did. And within a few months, she became my first wife. And we'd finished 
her job every day, and I'd finish my job every day, and we'd head out to the bar, and we'd drink until it closed about 1 o'clock in the morning, and then we'd home, go home and go to bed. She'd get up the next morning, and she'd go into work, and, you know, the gal at the next desk would look at her and say, hmm, you had tied one on last night, didn't you? Not the same with me. I had to go sign a radio station on the air at 6 o'clock in the morning and sound cheerful. Wake up all of North Georgia. That's hell, folks. It was then that I really learned how to pray because I'd get that first record started, cranked up in the morning after I told the world, good morning, what a beautiful, wonderful day it's going to be, and I'd crank the music down just as low as I could get it and still hear it, drape myself, after I turned the microphone off, drape myself over it and say, oh, dear God, thank you, this ain't television. <clears throat> my radio audiences never knew how many newscasts I did lying flat on my back on the floor with a microphone pulled down, reading the news. The only way I could get the room to quit going around and around. A couple of years later, my wife came home and told me one day that we were going to have a baby. We talked about it and said we need to clean up our act. We need to learn how to be responsible parents and to stop drinking so much. When that baby came, we did just that for two, three weeks. And then we discovered the American tradition of the babysitter, and we were off to the bar every night. I know today that it was then that that marriage began to fall apart. I hear people in AA say that when they came to the program and they started getting sober, they, they, their marriages got in trouble, and, uh, uh, or people that were still out there drinking, their marriages came, got in trouble. And the most common denominator seemed to have been problems of communication. <coughs> and I didn't understand that. Because my wife and I communicated. You could ask our neighbors three doors down the street. And they tell you, the Sanders communicate. They could even tell you what we were communicating about. And our communication sessions usually followed a particular pattern. We'd launch in there, I'd have all my facts all lined up and ready to go, and we'd, particularly Sunday afternoon, you know, a long stretch there, don't have to go to work, you can really get into it. And I could hang in there with the best of them until it became apparent that I was on the losing end of this thing. And then I would grab my bottle, storm out the back door, slam the door, get in my car, peel out of the driveway, I'm out of here, I don't need to stay here and listen to this crap. Happened over and over and over and over and over again. I didn't win too many of those discussions. One Sunday afternoon, we got into it, and I had all my facts lined up. I was ready to go. Couldn't lose this one. No way. Ten minutes into it, I was losing. So I did what I always did, grabbed my bottle, stormed out the back door, <coughs> up the hill. I'm out of here. I don't need to stay here and listen to this. Just like every other Sunday afternoon, we'd get into one of these knockdown, drag-out discussions. My wife... Oh, there was only one thing different about this Sunday afternoon. I still had my pajamas on. <laughs> well, my wife did what any sweet, loving, caring, thoughtful wife would do. She called a friend to come get me and bring me home. Only thing wrong with that, our friend happened to be a police captain. And he found, sit, found me sitting in the parking lot of the Holiday Inn, minding my own business, talking to my bottle. I knew him. He was a good friend. He came up and knocked on the car window. I looked up at him. Hey, Harold. He suggested I get out of my car and get into the police car with him. I told him he could. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> then he got to t discussing 
his relative size to mine and his Marine Corps wrestling experiences and the impact of that club hanging on his belt up the side of one's head it began to make sense that I might want to consider going with him. I was drunk, I wasn't stupid, <coughs> yet. I got out of the car and got in the car with him and also wasn't so drunk I knew in about two blocks we weren't headed toward my house. About two more blocks I knew where we were headed because we pulled into the parking lot in the emergency room of the local hospital. And before I could protest or say a word, he ushered me out of that car into that hospital and I was checked in and into a room upstairs. You won't believe how fast you can get checked in a hospital when you already got your pajamas on. I suspect even in Canada they got a thing about drunks sitting around in the lobby with vodka bottles in pajamas. They look good. Checked out of that hospital a few weeks later. Learn anything? Drunk before the sun went down. Time passed and uh, we did what uh, the great American and I am sure great Canadian cure and that's the geographical cure. All these problems are here. We go over there, we won't have the problems. They're not over there, they're here. I wish I'd have heard what Keith said 20 years ago. I could have saved my money on an awful lot of moves because no matter where I went, there I was. <laughs> Waiting. Mm. We moved back to Atlanta. Or to Atlanta, for, or back to Atlanta for me and to Atlanta for my wife for the first time. And that first that wife of mine had grown up in a little bitty town and, and didn't know about big city life. But I showed her real quick. I discovered in Atlanta a couple of things that they didn't have in those smaller towns I'd lived in that I liked a lot. One was called a three martini lunch. I preferred five. If you wanted to have three, that was your business. I also discovered a thing they had called a happy hour. You go in and you order one drink and they bring you two. Sometimes three. I mean, I was used to seeing two and three drinks in front of me, but I mean, they'd really put them there. <clears throat> and I discovered if you went and stretched the lunch this way and you went to happy hour early and pushed it this way, you could make the two meet and not even go back to work in the afternoon. <laughs> I did not discover, I did not see that my staff that worked for me, that suited them fine. Because while the guy that came in in the morning could sometimes be a pretty nice guy, that one that came back after one of those long lunches was mean, judgmental, surly, argumentative, forgetful. I also, the disease that I know today I had then did not allow me to see that when I'd come home from work, my little girl who was by now five, six years old, would avoid daddy at all costs hiding in those closets. And when I did look at her, I did not realize that the only look in her eyes was one of fear and hate and disgust. I didn't even notice that she didn't invite friends over to spend the night because she never knew when Dad's going to come home in the middle of the night in a drunken rage, smashing furniture, putting his feet through television sets, throwing chairs through plate glass windows dragging her out of the bed at three o'clock in the morning demanding that she clean up her room or some other stupid oh but my wife was always there the next morning to give me full details on everything that had happened the night before i would immediately begin to deny until physical evidence 
It became abundantly apparent what I had done, and I'd walk down into the dining room in there cowering in the corner of the kitchen with her head in her cereal bowl would be that little girl. And my wife would tell me what I had done, dragging her out of bed in the morning, screaming at her at 3 a.m. I'd take my little girl by the hand, and I'd say, Karen, sweetheart, let's take a walk. And we'd go out walking down the street. And I would say to her, sweetheart, Mom told me what Dad did last night, and I'm very sorry, I don't remember it. But I do promise you this, that it will never, never, ever happen again. My disease did not allow me to notice that there was not a flicker of belief in that little girl's eyes because we had taken too many walks and she had heard too many lies and too many empty promises. By now my wife was off drinking in her bars at night and I was off drinking in my bars at night and many nights that little girl would be home alone crying on a telephone calling bars. Is my mommy there? Is my daddy there? The bartender would say, it's your kid. Disgustedly hand me the phone. I'd say, hi, where's your mama? I don't know. Daddy, please come home. I will, sweetheart. I'm going to have one more drink, and then I'll be home. And I don't need to tell you the rest of the story. Three or four hours and 12 or 14 drinks later, I'd stumble into that little apartment, look into that bedroom and there's that little girl cowering in the corner of her bed crying trembling did it stop me no further and further downhill I went the more and more I began not to come home at night waking up in strange beds with strange people strange cities opening nightstand drawers and getting out phone directories to figure out where I was trying to piece together receipts from credit cards to get a chronological order of where I've been for the last four or five days. That is, as long as I had credit cards near the end, that was a joke. I could apply for a gasoline credit card and give the company the biggest laugh in the world. and give me anything. And sitting in those bars, those hours, I'm convinced with all my heart that the loneliest lonely on the face of this earth is the loneliness of an alcoholic. There can be 500 people in the bar, but I am absolutely alone miserable and I can also tell you that in the thousands of bars that I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in and spent thousands of hours I never once had a bartender say you keep coming back and it'll get better I used to drink those fancy drinks like martinis, you know, when I got out there in the business world doing all this great stuff. See, I got involved in a part of the broadcasting business that I've been in the last 20 years. It has to do with a thing called public relations, which is strange. I didn't even know what public relations was. A little town where I grew up in, you didn't have relations in public. You know, I didn't know. <clears throat> Near the end of my drinking, there were no rules. And I drank in those fancy places and those fancy lounges and with that classy crowd because it was classy. The crystal stemware and the olives bobbing around in there, you know, this is. But I'm going to tell you something. When you wake up on the ground in an Atlanta City downtown park at 5 o'clock in the morning with dew all over your suit, and when you look up and you realize you're looking up the nostrils of a policeman's horse, <laughs> folks, there ain't no class in that. There is also no good comeback when he said, fella, what are you doing down there? 
I mean, I've had 20 years to try to think of something I could have come back to that cop with. I ain't thought of anything yet. There's no class being splayed over the trunk of a police car and frisked and cuffed and hauled away. And there's no class when you stand before the judge to be sentenced for driving under the influence of alcohol and you stand before the judge drunk. My wife no longer asked why I didn't come home last night or last week. She didn't care. I didn't ask where she went when she went somewhere because I didn't care. One night she left home. I was sitting in my recliner chair at home, chugging away at my bottle. No more crystal stemware. And she left and gone about three hours, and she came back, and she stood in front of me, and she looked down at me and said, Guess where I've been? And I said, Who gives a... Who cares? She did something really weird. She didn't say anything. She flipped a white poker chip into my lap. And I looked down at it, and I looked back at her, and I looked down at it, and I looked back at her, and I said, I don't know where you've been, but if that's all you won, you had a lousy night. <laughs> the white poker chip happens to be the surrender chip in Georgia of Alcoholics Anonymous. She explained that to me, and I went into an absolute blind, pluperfect rage. Because there is no way on the face of this earth that that woman was an alcoholic. Because I knew if she was an alcoholic, then it meant that, that I, she just, there wasn't any way. She couldn't be an alcoholic. <laughs> Didn't stop her. She started going to those meetings every day, sometimes two or three. I kept waiting for the other shoe to fall. I knew she was going to try to make me go to those meetings. She didn't. Oh, there'd be a little clues left around the house, like I'd go to the bathroom, lift the toilet seat, and there's how it works, taped to the lid, you know. <laughs> Those occasional nights when I'd drop by the house so I could have a fight or something, I'd crawl into bed and shove my arm under the pillow like she knew I always slept, and there's a little piece of paper in there, and I'd pull it out, and it's that pamphlet with all those questions in it. I'd get to about the third question in that thing going, oh, I don't need this. She kept going to meetings. Things started changing, though. I'd get all revved up and ready to have a Sunday afternoon discussion. I'd have my facts lined up, ready to go, put them on a little index card so I could, you know. I'd say, let's get going here. And she'd say, huh? She'd turn around and walk off. You people were getting to her. She wouldn't fight anymore. You know how hard it is to have a one-sided fight? I didn't learn to have those till I got sober. Finally happened. I knew it was going to happen one of these days. She said, I'm going tonight to pick up a 90-day chip, and I'd like for you to go. No. Please. A few tears, back and forth. Finally, I said, all right, I'll go on one condition. I always set the conditions. Always have. You, her, God, everybody. See, she'd go to these meetings and be gone two or three hours, and I'd say, how long is the meeting? An hour. You were gone three hours. Where'd you go? We went to Coco's and had coffee. Right. Sure, I'm going to buy that. I didn't care where she was going. I just knew I wasn't going. I said, where are we going? She said, a place called the 8111 Clubs, an AA clubhouse. I said, all right, I'll follow you. Got in the car, followed her down the road. 
Got to the side of 8111 Roswell Road and turned up the driveway of this little house sitting up in the, the trees, pretty little house up on the hill. And, 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 and it was a residence they had converted into an AA clubhouse. And I said, you know, boy, this is real ironic. I passed this house a thousand times coming home from the bar. And I'd look up there and say, gosh, I need, need to get to know the guy that lives in that house because he obviously has a party every night. <laughs> well, that night old Bill went to the party. I slipped in the back door of that meeting room, sat down behind the post in the back of the room, about 50 or 60 people gathered in that room. The next hour, I witnessed the biggest bunch of weirdos I had ever seen in my life. The guy raised his hand, identified himself, said his name was Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic, and I got three DUIs, DWIs, whatever you call them up here. Everybody in the room cracked up. <laughs> next guy said, I got six DUIs and was arrested for indecent exposure. They came unglued. And I remember the thought that was going through my mind on that night of what are they laughing for? They have nothing to laugh about. They're alcoholics. I didn't understand the laughter. Today, I thank God every day of my life for the laughter that we share in these rooms because there's magic and there's power and there's healing in that laughter. And I think we need to do more of it. I would also warn you, don't laugh all the time or they'll come get you. <laughs> well, near the end of that meeting, they went on back and forth with that for the whole hour, and near the end of that meeting, I was getting ready to leave, and everybody stood up and grabbed me by the hand from both sides and said the only thing familiar to me that whole hour, and it was the Lord's Prayer. And that ended, and I got out and started out across the parking lot to get the hell out of this loony bin. Got about halfway across the parking lot, and somebody grabbed me by the shoulder. It felt like a steel vice spun me around and I found myself looking up into the face of a man that was 7 foot 11. I know today he's only 6'6", six, six, but he looked a hell of a lot taller that night. I also remembered him from the meeting because he had identified himself differently from everybody else. Everybody else said, my name's Joe, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Tom, I'm an alcoholic. My name's Sue, I'm an alcoholic. This guy had said, my name's Floyd and I'm a grateful hillbilly drunk. Give me a break. <laughs> this guy gets to talking about drinking moonshine liquor in the mountains of North Georgia. I'm going, God, what is this guy talking about? He's rattling on at me and he don't even know who I am. Found out later he knew exactly who I was because she'd been talking about me in those meetings. He rattles on about getting drunk in the wintertime and falling down in the woods and his face freezing to the ground and they had to pour coffee on him to get him up. <coughs> People coming out and getting in their cars and leaving. Remember, I went in my car so I can... My wife comes out and goes, Bye, gets in her car and leaves. And it's me and Floyd. <laughs> well, he talked on for about two and a half days. Seemed like it. I finally got away from him, got in my car, headed home, pulled into the carport, went in the house. My wife started to say something. I said, don't open your mouth. And I let it be known, don't ever, ever, ever try to get me to go to that nut house again. And she didn't. And the days and weeks and months passed. 
And the roller coaster went further downhill. More loneliness, more misery, more pain, more suffering, more waking up on the ground. No class. In the afternoon of July 26, 1982, I came out of a week-long blackout drunk. When I woke up, I looked down, and in my left hand there was an empty vodka bottle. And in my right hand there was a fully loaded cocked 22 pistol. And I had not remembered picking up either one of them. And the thought that was going through my mind, is this all there is? Is this really all there is? Because if it is, you can have it. And through the fog of the twilight hours of that evening, there came a voice. The voice of an angel? Not really. The voice of God? Not directly. It was the voice of a strapping, beautiful, wonderful hillbilly drunk named Floyd. <laughs> the only thing I remember that he had said that night, as I sat there in that chair, the words came into my ears. Floyd said, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I expected God to open up the gates of heaven and let me in. He didn't. But he opened the gates of hell and let me out. And if, and if there can be any closer to hell on this earth than where I was in the afternoon of July 26, 1982, I hope to God I never know it. And I got up out of that chair and I cleaned myself off and went in the bathroom and tried to, you know, drank about a half a quart of Listerine and, and uh, tried to make myself halfway presentable, got in a car and drove a few miles back to that little club on the hill. Walked in, sat behind, down behind that same post and peeked around it to the front of the room. And folks, don't tell me God hadn't got a sense of humor. Because sitting there at the front of the meeting, chairing that meeting, sat my wife. She didn't see me till the end of the meeting when a man stood up and explained the chips and that the white chip was the chip of surrender. And I got out of that chair and I took the longest walk I've ever taken in my life to the front of that room. And a man pressed a white poker chip with an AA on it into a trembling, sweating palm and my hand closed around it. And I choose today with all my heart to believe that an old Bill Sanders walked to the front of that room that night and died and that a new one walked away. Because by the grace of God, in his loving gift of you to me, I have not taken a drink since that night. And I thank God every day for that. They told me very early on that I needed to get a sponsor. I decided, you know, I didn't understand that. I said, you know, I got lots of sponsors. You do? Yeah. I got, I'm in radio. You know, I got... No, no, wrong kind of sponsor. They explained what kind they were talking about, and I decided to do it scientifically. So I looked around to find the sweetest, kindest, roly-poliest, white-haired old granddaddy I could find. One that I knew would pat me on the head and tell me that I was a good boy. And he'd never seen anybody work this program like I was doing. And I asked a man by the name of Doc Crandall to be my sponsor. Biggest mistake I ever made in my life. In the years that man was my sponsor, I don't remember him telling me one damn thing I wanted to hear. But he told me a lot of what I needed to hear. I knew I was in trouble that very first day. He said, yes, I will be your sponsor. Now we lay the ground rules. First thing you do every morning when you get up is you roll out of bed on your knees and you ask your God to keep you sober today. 
<clears throat> well, Doc, I, uh, I know that this um, prayer stuff is an important part of this fellowship. been around here the last few weeks, and I realize that. But I grew up going to church, even taught Sunday school class on over, but one time. Um, i got to be honest, though, I'm not, just not comfortable with this knee business. He said, I didn't say a damn thing about you being comfortable. I said, well, Doc, from what I heard around here the last few weeks, this is a program of suggestion. <laughs> he says, it is. I suggest you do it or get you another sponsor. If you want confirmation of this man, this beautiful, wonderful lady over here with 29 years who happens to be my wife's sponsor was Doc's uh, wife. He, that's the way he was, wasn't he? You see, we kept, kept it in the family. He gave me one of those books, and he said, I want you to take this home, and I want you to spend the next couple of weeks studying that, and I want you to read the first five chapters and spend some time on it. Read it five or six times, and you come back, and we're going to sit down, and we're going to talk about how you can use that in your life. And I said, all right, I can get into that. I stopped by the office supply place on the way home, and I got me a couple of highlighters and some sharp pencils and a legal pad, and I went home, cleared off the desk, and spread all that stuff out, and I went to work. I started highlighting and underlining, and I struck through the steps that didn't have anything to do with me, and I, 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 I made notes on the stuff y'all hadn't thought of that I had, and wrote all kinds of stuff, about 20 pages in that legal pad, and I called Doc and said, I'm ready to talk. He said, hot dog, come on over. I went over to his house and laid all that out on his coffee table, and he leaned back in his big old chair, and he said, lay it on me. I said, okay, Doc. And look at this first step here. As I interpret, and that's as far as I got. <laughs> he said, boy, that step don't need your interpreting. It needs your doing. I said, I know that, Doc. I understand that. But what I think it means is, he said, Bill, look closely. You'll notice they wrote it in English. It says what it means. If you look even closer, you'll see they put little numbers by it for smart college boys like you. <clears throat> so you can follow along. God, he was tough. That's how I began my journey through the steps. Step by step, day by day, hour by hour, he led me, sometimes kicking and screaming, sometimes cussing. Many times I'd walk away from his house, that damned old shit, right? but he was taking me through them. I hope I never forget as long as I live. I asked him one day, Doc, what do we do when we get through working these steps? May I never forget his instant answer. He said, you lay real still because you're dead. <laughs> Doc, also, Doc also admonished the people that he sponsored if you ever get in an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you will lose. You can't win that argument. It can't be a subject for discussion. I heard it up here, but I didn't hear it in here. And I hadn't been sobered a few months, and I had to make my first business trip out of town from Atlanta up to Washington, D.C. And I fortified myself with a meeting, had lunch with my sponsor, got on the plane, and hadn't cleared the ground in Atlanta International Airport till the meeting started upstairs. 800 miles from home. Nobody up there knows you're an Alcoholics Anonymous. You can tie one on tonight, and by the time you come home Friday, you, you notice I didn't say you can have a drink. I ain't never said have a drink. I don't understand the concept of a drink. What good is a drink? 
It better be a real big drink. <laughs> that meeting's going on. You can't, you can't, should you, shouldn't you get away with it? No, you can't. I looked around that plane to see if other people were hearing those voices. They weren't. Plane touched down at National Airport, off the plane, into a cab, headed for the Hyatt Regency Hotel on Capitol Hill. The battle's still going on. That little cab driver's talking his head off to me. I don't hear a word he's saying. Couldn't understand him anyway. He was Iranian or something. I don't know. Out of the cab into the lobby of that big giant hotel with the big atrium lobby, and I walked in, and my radar spotted the bar immediately. Hear the music. Hear the tinkling of the glasses. Took me less than ten minutes to check into my room, get back down, and stand in the doorway of that bar as that meeting played out in my head. And Doc's admonishment to me, if you get an argument in your head about whether or not you're going to take a drink, you'll lose, was nowhere in sight. And I lost. And I walked over and sat down at the bar. And the bartender came and stood in front of me and looked down for a minute and he smiled. And he says, hi, buddy, how about a Coke? That what? <laughs> He pointed to my suit and said, I figured by that right there that that's probably what you'd want. I'd forgotten to take off this damned AA pen. <laughs> he went down to the bar, served a couple of other people, came back and stood in front of me again. I'm still sitting there staring at that coat. <laughs> he said, you haven't got any business in here, do you? <laughs> he said, where you belong is three blocks down the street, upstairs over the furniture store. There's a meeting in 20 minutes. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> I went to that meeting that night, and I did two other things. I walked back into a bar in a hotel, and I thanked an angel in the shape of a bartender for saving my life. And he smiled and said, you weren't in any real danger in here. I saw you standing in the door for so long over there, and I thought you were looking for somebody till you sat down, and I saw you how you were sweating, and then I saw that pen, and in no way in hell you were getting a drink out of me tonight. <laughs> the, sec the second thing I did is I got down on my knees beside a hotel room bed in, in our nation's capital. And I told God, if you had gone to this much trouble to keep me sober tonight, I will never test you again. And I haven't. I don't go in bars because I've got no business in bars. I don't belong in bars. I belong in rooms like this with people like you, people who understand me, a square hole for this square peg that I looked for all my life. I'm not getting away from me now. And my sponsor, Doc, one time sat in a, a, a meeting in Atlanta and a young man teenager got up and said something he was going that night he and some friends were going to a bar doc said what for he said going to hear the band he said buy their record <laughs> kids said they hadn't got one doc said then they're not any good <laughs> but i didn't understand what was in it for you what was your motive i thought there's another book you're going to slip me one of these days there's going to be the secret payoff in there there's some, something more. Why did you care? Why did you care? You didn't even know me. I didn't think. One day I came to a meeting. Doc said, there's a young man here tonight that's got a background similar to yours. This is his first meeting, and after the meeting tonight, we're going to stick around here. We're going to talk with him a little while. And I said, gosh, Doc, I appreciate you thinking of me, but uh, 
I've had a rough day today. I, it's been a long day. I got a headache and I hadn't had a bite to eat. Catch me another time. He said, you don't understand, son. You're staying after this meeting tonight. I said, okay, I'll stay a few minutes. Two and a half hours after that meeting in my car on the way home, I had to pull over to the side of the road with tears streaming down my face because suddenly I got it. I knew what your payoff was. I knew what your motive was. Because in that couple of hours, this self-centered, egotistical lunatic of an alcoholic had gotten out of himself and thought more of another human being than he did himself, and the feeling was magnificent. Doc had had time to get home, and I got home, and I grabbed the phone, and I called him. I said, Doc, this is the greatest feeling in the whole world. I've never felt anything like this. I want to go talk to some more people. There's jails, and there's prisons, and there's hospitals. And then he started talking about easy does it. But I found a secret that I'll share with you. If every day of your life you will try to pay back a little of the debt that you owe to Alcoholics Anonymous every single day, an amazing thing is going to happen. The more you pay back, the more you get. And every day of your life you'll end up deeper in debt but happier. It can't happen any other way. In November of 1985, my sponsor, Doc, went on a 12-step call and never came home. As he and another man struggled to take away a shotgun from a young alcoholic who Doc had been working with for several years and it was suicidal, the gun went off and Doc caught it full in the stomach and died moments later. In the stillness of that evening, as I sat in his den in his home, I said, how can I go on? How can I continue without the man who has guided my steps and led my path, who has shown me the way? How can I stay sober without this man in my life? In the quiet stillness of that evening, the answer came. You stay sober by doing the things that he taught you to do, and that his sponsor taught him, and his sponsor taught him, and his sponsor taught him all the way back to that night in the spring of 1935 in Akron when the broken-down stockbroker and the has-been doctor sat in that little gatehouse and said, do you think we might be able to stay sober if we help one another? I believe with all my heart that God in His infinite wisdom in 1935 looked down and said, the lowly alcoholic has suffered long enough. He's been the outcast of the world long enough. I've got to give him a way out. And what a way He gave us. We could have and many of us should have been locked away forever taken out of society so we can't harm anyone else or ourselves, straight-jacketed and put away and saved, the world saved from us. But instead, he gave us each other and more love and more laughter and more sharing and more joy than most of us had ever known in our entire lives. And then he topped it off with a relationship with him, a personal relationship with him that few people on this earth will ever, ever know. We are the luckiest people on the face of the earth, and I believe it with all my heart and all my soul. God. In the days and weeks and months after Doc's death, I was surrounded by the most wonderful group of sponsorees that the world could ever have. And those guys took me to meetings when I didn't want to go they made me talk when I wanted to isolate, and they saved my life again. And I have to tell you the rest of the story about the young man that Ronnie, the name Ronnie, that uh, 
Doc was trying to save that had the shotgun in his hand. This beautiful lady over here went to court and told the judge, Doc loved that boy. Doc would not want that boy locked up. And that boy loved Doc. Everybody believed that Ronnie couldn't get sober. Everybody gave up on Ronnie, everybody but Doc. The judge looked at Doc, the young man and said, Ronnie, this man gave his life to save yours. Don't let him have died for nothing. It's been eight years ago, and to our knowledge, Ronnie hasn't had a drink. Nearing the end, I referred earlier to that woman I married back in 1966 as my first wife. Because, you see, I'm not married to the same woman anymore. And I thank God she's not married to the same man anymore either. You have made us into new people. And we love you for that. It's the same body, but she's not the same person. It's incredible how she's cleaned her act up since I got sober. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, I love that woman with all my heart and all my soul. And she is the dearest thing in the world to me. I'd rather be with her than anybody in the world. And you gave us that. And I love her, and I want you to meet her. Would you stand up? <laughs> On December 30th, 1966, or, or 1982, rather, when a divorce decree was to have become final, instead, my wife and I stood before the same minister who had married us 16 years earlier, and we renewed our vows, and we started all over again. And the last dozen years have been absolutely wonderful. Oh, we still have a discussion every once in a while. <laughs> but making up's a lot more fun than it used to be. And now the rest of the story. In February of the year before last, on a Saturday afternoon, I took another walk with my little girl. This time it was down the aisle of a church. And oh dear God, was she beautiful in that long white flowing gown. She looked like a princess. And I looked like a penguin in that monkey suit. <laughs> and I cried all the way down the aisle. And at the front of that church, I placed my little girl's hand into the hand of another man. And the two of them turned to face the same minister that had married her mother and me 25 years earlier. And the same minister that 16 years, or the 10 years before, had renewed our vows, and they began their life together. And we love our son-in-law. He's a wonderful young man. I worried a great deal the first night that we met him. We went out to dinner to meet him, and the first thing he did when we walked in the restaurant sat down is he ordered a beer. And he sat there and nursed that thing for two and a half hours. And I said, son, you ain't never going to make it in my little club drinking like that. <laughs> and he won't. But that's not when the greatest tears were to come. The greatest tears were to come at the reception that would follow. You see, my daughter had said, Dad, I want to have the first dance with Paul, but I want to have the second dance with you. And I said, oh, dear, sweetie. Uh, okay, uh, that's fine, but you better tell me what we're going to dance to so Mom and I can practice. You see, when I was drinking, I used to dance like Fred Astaire and John Travolta. Not quite as good anymore. She said, nope, I don't want to tell you. And so she didn't. And I stood along with several hundred pe other, other people by the dance floor and watched my little girl and the 
Handsome Prince danced around the dance floor together, and then the song ended, and my little girl came and stood in front of me. And she reached out her hands, and the music began, and we moved on to the dance floor. And the words of the song were, Did you ever know that you're my hero and everything I'd like to be? I can fly higher than an eagle. You are the wind beneath my wings. Oh God, what a miracle had been worked in the lives of this family, ripped apart, shredded, destroyed by alcoholism. And hour by hour, and day by day, and week by week, and month by month, you and him put it back together again. You restored a family back together again. And as we danced around the dance floor, I looked into that little girl's eyes, and the hate and the anger was gone. And I saw love, and I saw respect. And you gave me that. I can tell you folks, no high I ever had out of a bottle could touch what I felt that day. And what I feel when I stand in front of a room full of people like you, I think we are the luckiest people on the face of this earth. A new chance at life? No. A new life. A new beginning. That little girl goes with me sometimes when I speak. And she's sitting always on the front row. And I look down into her eyes and I say, thank you, God. So this morning, I would say to you in closing, can there any be any wonder that I would say to you, did you ever know that you, you are my heroes and you are everything I've ever wanted to be. And I believe with all my heart that we together can all soar like eagles because he is the wind beneath our wings. God bless you and thank you very much.